Hey there, and welcome back to War Starts at Midnight, the podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Jacob Graves. Hello! And Peterson Hill. Hello! Guys, what are we bantering about today? Well, first, we've got a review of P.T. Anderson's breakout sophomore effort, Boogie Nights. It's a real movie, Jake. Plus, we've got the perfect beer to pair with PTA's porno-inspired picture. And of course, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, Chris. So we're back in P.T. Anderson world. Boo. Thank God. I, man, I feel like I'm going to have to be the referee throughout this entire series now. Do you just picture me sitting on one of your shoulders and Peterson on the other one? Just like being the angel devil of this podcast? No, that's not the that's not the metaphor I would use. <laughs> what, two kids with foam bats? It, two children. Two children is actually the exact. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. That's, you guys are in the back of the minivan. If you guys don't give this movie a chance, I'm pulling this podcast over. Basically. Uh, (laughs) But today we are talking about Boogie Nights. So I assume, Jake, you probably, even coming into this, have lower feelings about it. And Peterson, you probably feel great about it. But I did want to kind of figure out what our relationship was to it before coming back for this revisit. So... Uh, well, Jake, let's start with you. Yeah, well, you, you could say it with less disdain than that, but it's okay. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> pretty much this is a movie that I had not seen until probably four or five years ago. And I watched it straight up war crime. Everybody loves Boogie Nights. It's one of those great films that you have to see. And I left kind of disappointed. I just didn't really, you know, it didn't really click with me. So I'm really, I was really excited to get to revisit it this time and give it a second chance uh, having, you know, uh, time having passed, having processed it, know what, what to expect with this movie and really give it that, uh, that second shot at, at appreciating it because I, I did not the first time I watched it. Well, luckily you haven't let on at all how you're going to feel about this movie. So there's dramatic <laughs> tension in finding out whether or not Jake liked it the second time. Peterson, what about you? So yeah, I jumped into this movie the first time, probably late high school, early college and it kind of bowls you over with uh, PTA's ability to wield cinema really is kind of a drug and as some kind of weapon, he is so good at it. And I think this movie jumps off the screen in a way that very few filmmakers are able to do. So since I first saw it, I, you know, 15 years ago, maybe, maybe a little bit uh, sooner than that, but it really has become one of those movies that I love returning to. Time and time again. How many times do you have any rough estimate? How many times you've you've seen it? Uh, probably 174. Uh, <laughs> no, probably I'd say between five and seven. Okay. Um, probably not more than that. Maybe eight, but I mean, twice in the last week. What about you, Chris? How do you sit on this one? Uh, it's one that I saw probably around the same time as Peterson. I think it was like mid to late high school. And... I like I've kind of evolved with it. I've I've you know watched it every I don't know 4 or 5 years since, I would say. And each time I I see it, I've I've kind of changed my opinion a little bit and those are 
generally the movies that I like the most where they continue to evolve with me. Change your opinion on quality or change your opinion on thematic material? Change my opinion on what matters or what is in like how I'm how I'm looking at the film. And we'll get into this, I think. Let's jump in and let's uh, let's get to the review of Boogie Nights right now. Let's do it. How do you keep them in the theater after they've come? With beauty? I'm with acting. No, I understand. You've got to get them in the theater, you know? you got to keep the seats full. But I don't want to make a film. Where they show up, they sit down, they jack off, and they get up and they get out before the story ends. It is my dream, it is my goal, it is my idea to make a film. That the story just sucks them in. And when they spurt out that joy juice, they just gotta sit in it. They can't move until they find out how the story ends. You know make a film like that and I understand you know they have to make films I made them myself you know that are a few laughs everybody fucks their brains out and that's fine but it's my dream to make a film that is true and right and dramatic so for I don't know the couple of people listening who, for some reason, haven't seen Boogie Nights, little bit of uh, plot here. We've got a pornographer named Jack Horner, uh, played by Burt Reynolds, wonderfully by Burt Reynolds, I might say. Uh, he discovers this new young kid named Eddie Adams and uh, decides to bring him into his fold of his sort of hodgepodge family that he's assembled. And he becomes a big star named Dirk Diggler. And then we follow this family through uh, several years and their trajectory up and down and, uh, you know, starts in the the late 70s. We roll into the 80s. We get into VHS and the change in pornography and also drugs and rock and roll and Corvettes and uh, other things like stereo sales. High fidelity, baby. High, high fidelity to that, that THX 1138. That means it. it's at the highest possible fidelity. That is Bring correct. Bring you up you know, three or four quads. You know, that's that, that's <laughs> just that. Uh, and, and so it's definitely, I would say this, this film's definitely pulling on some Altman vibes as far as he's got a big ensemble cast, uh, much like the film to come after this Magnolia. He's got a lot of storylines kind of weaving in and out. Um, and he's got his sort of makeshift family unit again, kind of like we had with Heart eight, um, but on a much grander scale. So I guess, Jake, I'm curious, you were not drinking the Kool-Aid on this the first time around. Anything, any progress at all watching it the second time? No, and it kind of bums me out because I really like liking things. I like liking movies. I like uh, appreciating them for what they are, and I don't like saying, oh, this didn't do it for me. This one, it didn't. It just, what for whatever reason, and I've been trying to rack my brain on what it is that makes this movie not work for me in the way that other movies do. 
And you guys can can kind of maybe try to sell me on this one, and you might be able to. But I, I never feel like there are stakes in this movie. Like, I don't feel like... Maybe it's because things come so easy to Dirk so early in the movie. I just don't feel like at, the plot is driving me forward at all. Things are happening. I see things are happening. I see that there's a series of events, and I can... Go back and say, oh, I get it. There was a big arc going on there. But at no point do I ever feel any like drive from the plot. What do you mean there aren't stakes? I mean, he's he's a kid who has a terrible home life. He like his mother is abusive. He mm-hmm. has nothing going for him. He's dropped out of school. And basically, as he says, he has this one thing that he's good at. And the one thing that he's good at starting out is not even so much a talent as it is just a gift that he has a large penis. Mm-hmm. And so it's a journey of this this guy who, like, his penis is his only way out. It's his only way to get um, independence from his abusive mother, to move out and get away from that family that, you know, he's, he's never had... A nurturing family and he discovers this family that is real messed up in a lot of ways but they also take care of each other and so that's i mean just to give a little bit of stakes like that's i guess the first rung that he has to climb to me we come from this world where he is kind of hermetically sealed with these abusive parents really abusive mother his father is just more of a it's aloof. It's probably the best way you can describe it. Or docile him. or complacent with it or something like that. Yeah, he, you know, I think he's kind of scared of the his wife as well. So he comes from this hermetically sealed, very isolated existence and then finds what is almost equally hermetically sealed and equally isolated within uh, certainly LA, but also the entertainment industry. It is this very tiny little niche that he's found. And it's this tiny makeshift family that Jack Horner, which is the Burt Reynolds character, he really does try to keep everyone in line. And Amber Way is a Julian Moore character, does as well, but she's a little bit more I guess you'd say a little bit more searching, a little bit more still adrift, whereas the Jack Horner character is pretty in control. He is very much in control of his craft and what he is managing with these people. And it is. I mean, it's a sad, very empty existence they lead mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but they do find some saws with each other. And I think that's that's the big thing that PT is really latching onto is that not all families are kind of these perfect shapen families. Some of them are these amalgams of different walks of life, different people, different ambitions, and they all meet here. In what is a very, essentially a very lost lifestyle in a lot of ways. And I think PT certainly captures that. He doesn't shy away from the fact that this is an empty, kind of meaningless life in a lot of ways. But for them, it finds meaning in each other. And see, to to me, and, and all, all I can come up with is why I don't kind of immediately tie it. It feels like a downfall story. It's not like, so everything comes so easily to begin with because it is just a natural talent that he has. 
then he has his downfall and he's just kind of struggling to get back to me it's almost like a uh it, it's if you want to look at it as a hero's journey you know going out uh and kind of coming back having changed but it's like a reverse one where it's a downfall and he's just trying to get back where he came like started i don't think applying the hero's journey to pt anderson is going to that get, that's like never Campbell, gonna get you anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Campbell's I, Campbell's not gonna help you here. I I I I I agree, and maybe that's one of the problems that I have. It it is less structured than some other films that I like. Like I'm I'm trying to figure out how to even put into words what it is that didn't connect for me on this film. Well, honestly, this is to me this is probably one of his more structured scripts, you know. Yeah. Wait till you get a little bit farther down the line, then we're we're for some deuces coming down the line. <laughs> this is kind of too unstructured and unformless because I think PTA mines a lot of structure and he builds and builds and builds and builds this world and he builds it so he can knock it down to show how fragile it all is. And I think the fragility of this lifestyle is something that he taps into really perfectly and it's no, no moment for any of these characters is guaranteed. It's all up for grabs. He's not romanticizing what they're doing. Um, he like, there are, there are fun and exciting moments, but these are moments that feel fun and exciting to the characters in the moment. But then you turn around and you see like little bill on New Year's Eve mm -hmm. and what he is driven to, which I mean, he's kind of the beginning of everything the the downward slope in, in the eighties. But this whole thing is this like very, um, I, I think the way that he handles, particularly having so many characters, the way that he handles their human, their real human core, uh, is pretty amazing in he allows each of them individually to be you amber waves. You can totally identify who she is and really drill down to who she is. Buck is the same way. And you, you know, Buck doesn't get a whole lot of screen time even, but you understand like he's a guy who he, he's not in porn because he wants to be a porn star. He's in porn because he can make money doing it. And he's trying to get out of it by any means that he can. You've got Dirk, who is the one figure who is maybe like he gets into porn because it's connected to his one talent. Uh, but the, you know, Jake, you're talking about the, the downfall and it is like a cautionary tale, but did you see the end of this movie? Yeah. I, yeah, I did. And like, I mean, the thing, the thing that I think is so fascinating about the way that he structures this, this whole thing is a lot of other directors would say, oh, well, we'll have, we'll have the downfall and then we'll have the redemptive bringing them back up mm -hmm. part of the story. And what Anderson ultimately says is, well, the redemption, we don't need to see the redemption. What's more important for these characters is actually seeing what comes after redemption. So they get redemption off screen. And then we get what could be like you could criticize as a overly happy ending. 
but I also don't think like I think they have weathered that wave and they've survived. And but it's not like everything is clear sailing from there on out either. Yeah, Dirk may be in a better spot than he was a little bit earlier, you know, 15, 20 minutes earlier in the movie. But I also think that he has basically bitten the apple of, you know, what this lifestyle is. And he's going to spiral downwards every once in a while. And it's going to be this constant cycle for him. And I, I mean, maybe there's some happiness there. I mean, to me, I think Buck probably has some happiness, uh, which is, I will say, Buck's probably the most relatable character in the movie. Um, and we'll get to maybe his turn towards the end. But you're rooting for Buck more than anyone in this movie, probably, in my opinion. Yeah. I dig a little bit of issue with your saying that Dirk doesn't have a happy ending. And like, it's. I, I get what you're saying about like he's definitely going to have waves, but that's that's sort of life. I I think it's telling that if you just pay attention to the way Dirk is really studying and delivering his lines at the end, that's the best he acting he has ever done. It's a real film. It's it, well, but no, exactly. Like he, so there is something to him being Jack's the key to Jack's dream of actually making a real film. And because the stuff that they make throughout, you know, most of this picture, the stuff that we see them make is really bad. It is what you would expect of, you know, cheap porno acting, but there is this little bit of glimmer of hope of, okay, maybe they are, they're they're continually progressing what they do and there's gonna be tragedies along the way and there's gonna be like maybe there are relapses and that sort of thing but they're not written off as characters that are just like oh well he's a pornographer and a druggie that's all that you can define him by but even in within that success isn't there a hollowness i think there's a hollowness in it depends on whenever it's just looked at as ego and Eddie Adams has a lot of ego when he becomes Dirk Diggler. There's absolutely no denying that. But when reflected back into this unit that he's created, I mean, Jack really is a father figure. And in he's he is the best parental unit that Eddie has ever had, you know. And Amber Waves, like, she's closer to it's interesting how it reflects his life because it's sort of like amber is still not a great mother but she's a better mother to dirk at least than his own mother um so i think there's there is something in the microcosm that they've they've created that's sort of they all need each other and the interesting part is, even though I, I like, I, I hear what you're saying, and I actually think all the characters are good in this movie. Like, I think the characters are well defined. You know what they want. They're acted amazing. They're casted great. And just for some reason, just at any point in the movie, I feel like I could turn it off and walk away, and I'd be fine. I'm not judging them for what they're doing. It's not anything like that. It's just like I don't feel anything compelling me to keep watching the movie. You like. 
I'm going to have to watch it again to figure out what my problem is with it. I invite you to do so. What about, you say there's no structure. What about the, I think his, while this is a long movie, uh, I think structurally and editorially, he does a pretty amazing job to put you in the place to kind of feel like the characters as they're they're going through so as as things start to spiral downward um we start to get and as dirk starts to get into cocaine and there's you know the the drugs and the money and the cars and everything the editing speeds up we start yeah, going yeah. into we start going into these dissolves that start to make it a little more difficult to grasp time and space and it starts to mess with your mind a little bit and then by the time we get to that bonkers alfred molina scene uh towards the end like it's you as an audience member want out just like dirk and um reed rothschild do they they want to get out of that crazy house with the guy throwing uh throwing firecrackers it's like and honestly i i was thinking it would be amazing to program this film in a theater where you could like start out with the theater like a nice cool temperature and then just slowly slowly pull the turn the ac off and pull it up and like get to where you're like just a sweltering like 85 degrees with no with just like no air movement at all by the time you get to that crescendo of paranoia um that would be an, an amazing visceral experience in in a theater and then once it finally breaks then put the ac back on the last like 10 minutes see and the thing with ptf me especially in this film is that he slowly builds the tension up and up and up and up and the whole movie's building towards that Alfred Molina scene. And by the time you get there, you've been with these characters long enough that yes, I mean, Dirk is kind of a he's not the most fun character to spend time with. Like, yes, he's fun to be with, but he's also he's kind of a despicable person in a lot of ways. But by the end, you do care about him. So when you're in that moment, the tension is ratcheted up and you like you can't breathe. Like it's it's this eight minute, nine minute sequence where you really are on the edge of your seat and PTA. I think the sound design in that scene is so good because it just, it overwhelms you. And that's what I think PTA can do so well is he overwhelms your senses. Like even, even in small moments, like the opening shot of this movie, the scene where he follows the girl from the pool into the, into the water. Mm-hmm. PTA loves to kind of overwhelm your senses and really pull you in. Can I ask you something? Uh-huh. Do you work out? Yeah. Yeah, you look like it. What do you squat? Not two. Super. Super. What about you? What do you squat? 350. Wow. No BS. That's a lot. What do you work out? Torrance, where I live. Cool. Hey, you ever go to Vince's out here? Oh, no. I would have seen you. I'm there every day. I've always wanted to work out at Vince's. Cool, here. Taste that. 
Oh, rock and roll. Right? Hey, did you ever see that movie Star Wars? Oh, about four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Really? Let me ask you this, Jake. What about the, the Reed and Dirk uh, romance there? You didn't have any, like, if this movie was more of just like a hangout movie with them, you yeah you didn't I, I, you didn't find those characters in any way magnetic yeah when the two, the interactions between the two of them i did i did find some interest there like that was like a rewarding part when it was on screen but it, it wasn't the focus because dirk diggler is so self-centered that like he couldn't even embrace that long term especially as he got into drugs and even as they were together dirk is just so self-centered around it all that that wasn't like if, if that would have been a bigger part of the movie or the, or the plot of the movie was like their relationship and how that went over time. It wasn't. It was it was there. And I enjoyed that aspect of it. But that that moment where the two of them really the, the 10 minutes where it's going back and forth between the party and you're watching all these disparate characters kind of go throughout their lives for a minute where you have the Luis Guzman and uh, and Don Cheadle talking the phone call mm-hmm. for Maggie, essentially Amber Waves. Oh, you have the girl searching and trying to find the cocaine and then having the o- overdose. And then the two of them uh, basically having a pissing contest of like, oh, yeah, you watch me in my flip or watch my half gainer or watch this. Yeah. And John C. Riley's like, oh, how much do you squat? And they're basically trying to one up each other uh, is so is so good. It's so well-timed. It's one of these great moments where PTA knows how to draw you in to these very small, very quiet moments in a movie that is so big, so sprawling, but he never forgets the characters. He really never does. What about, we're, we're talking about the, the pool party scene. Um, one of the, probably one of the more famous needle drops of the movie, I would say with, uh, stones and going in the water that diegetic sound of kind of coming out going in um what do you guys think about the the needle drops in the soundtrack of this film because it is like it is a pretty big part um of the movie as a whole and pt anderson likes likes music likes score almost wall-to-wall in most of his films so i'll go ahead and say one of the things that is frustrating me about this movie and even though I think it's kind of a masterpiece in a lot of ways, I think PTA is so kind of excited about what he's able to do that some of the needle drops, some of the camera motions and how they blend together, he is getting a little bit too too in your face, a little bit too excited. And he's showing off in a little bit and in the same way as Dirk is. Uh, so it's 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 very tied in together the two of them in a lot of ways. Man, y'all y'all are gonna hate the things I'm about to say. So I'm just gonna get out there and say it. I think I think the music selection is fantastic and I think it's really great. But I think it's doing the same thing that Scorsese did twenty years before this movie came out. Uh I think it's very, very similar and I've every time I or both times I've watched this, I end up thinking like he watched a lot of Scorsese before making this movie. Not that that's a bad influence to draw from. I just don't think 
it nailed it in the same way, which is a really empty criticism. This isn't a good Scorsese movie, but I feel like it's trying to do all those same things. You have elements from so many different films being pulled in there and just not in a way that works for me. It's difficult to argue that because obviously it's a preference thing, but I I do think uh, claiming that it's a, a weaker, emptier, like, version of Scorsese. I think that's a grasping at straws to find a, an explanation. Like, I think, I think most of it works. I do think there is, there is some over flashiness here. Like it's almost like the guy who made hard eight got a second Mm -hmm. chance and he got a little bit more money. And so he decided I'm going to put everything that I can into this. Mm -hmm. Well, but isn't and that a lot of directors at this stage in their career basically saying, yeah. I need to say everything I can possibly say and throw everything I possibly can into this one movie because I don't know if it's going to happen again. So I yeah. need to show all my talent here, basically take one massive swing, and this yeah. is the one I need to do it on. Because you know what? Movie three, I don't know if it's going to happen. Irony being that movie three is going to be the even bigger could never (laughs) like that's that's the one for him. But at this point, no. Yeah, you're right. Like it's this this is very much feels like I mean, if you were to go and compare this to the latter half of his career so far, um, it feels like a young filmmaker who is playing with all the toys that they've always dreamed about playing with. And so there are things that are just a little, maybe a little too polished or a little too like they don't, they don't sit back the way that they would, or he's, he's not okay with just allowing something to be a little quiet or ugly or, or whatever to build a scene. He feels like he has to control every piece because he doesn't I, – I don't think he's developed that confidence yet as a director. That that moment where he follows the girl into the pool, that's a moment that doesn't really need to exist within the film. You could cut that out and it's fine. But at the same time, it's such a bravura camera movement that you just sit back and think, holy shit. This guy has so much potential and this – unbelievable wealth of imagination and creativity. And I think it only capitalizes down the line even more. And so I've only really seen later P.T. Anderson films. And in no way does this feel like the voice that he has later in his career. Have you you seen Magnolia? No, I have not. And and that's what I was going to say. You guys having seen more than I have, do you feel like this is purely a P.T. Anderson film or is this really just a young director? I, I think there's a line to be drawn post Magnolia and pre Magnolia okay. um, would, would be my, uh, my biggest, like, because I think there was definitely a turning point when we got to, uh, punch drunk love and he's headed mm-hmm. more in that because he doesn't do at least as much anymore. He doesn't do the big Altman style ensembles. He, he started, narrowing down to one figure or one figure and some folks around them, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I think it's first wave PT Anderson. Yeah. And the earliest thing I had seen prior to this was punch drunk love. And so that's why I, maybe I just don't see that, that connection. And one of the things I love about 
Boogie Nights and where he is at as a filmmaker is that he is so driven by these sprawling characters. And now I think he only gets better with time. I mean, this is not my favorite PTA movie. Uh, it's not close, really. Uh, I do think he has a lot to say here. But one of the things I do love is that he is finding his voice and through this and through Magnolia and then Punch Drunk Love. And then there's, a, I think, a four-year gap between Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood. And it is like a filmmaker has just it's a risen. Yeah, he has risen like like a phoenix from his own ashes and rebuilt himself. Um, so I think it's interesting to see his, the two halves of his career right now because you really have four. I had to say, I'd say Punch Rock Love is lumped in with this, Magnolia, Heart Eight. And you have those four and then everything after, and they're very different in a lot of ways, but it's the same DNA. See, I, I would say Punch Drunk Love is, it's not necessarily the latter half, but it's a, it's a mile marker in a change. It's a, it's a um, straddle. It's, it's, it's definitely a shift. I mean, think about going from, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure. Think about going from Magnolia, Magnolia to Punch Drunk Love. That's a massive shift just was in half scale a, in a quarter of the characters maybe even less than that yeah it's he's and he is i think one of the things that uh magnolia and boogie nights have is they're sprawling they're these massive la stories and i think he never loses the characters though even as is as, as crazy as magnolia gets it never loses the central focus of its main characters and i think Boogie Nights has the same exact thing where you you were very concerned about where Dirk's going to end up and how he is going to emerge, and obviously PT he follows him through a six year frame as this industry of the pornography industry is changing. You know, there's in 1980 basically the first time you see porn being filmed after uh, the first half is that. When porn is being filmed, it's no longer the Julian Moore, we'll say, body type. It is now very cosmetically enhanced women in a way that the first half is not. It's much more natural in the first half. Uh, Julian Moore is essentially kind of lost at sea in the second half as like a female figure, like with her, you know, I'll say her body type. Um, and it shows you where the shift in society is going, how everything's changing, how attraction is evolving, how our idea of what people should look like is evolving with the advent of home video and the ability to watch things at home now. Everything is about the quick, easy, very comfortable lifestyle. It's not about, you know, when they were shooting these movies, you had to go to a theater. You had to go out and watch these in a theater, which is insane by today's standards. Imagine going and sitting in a theater with Pee Wee Herman and watching this movie. I'd rather not. Also, there is a kind of underlying element that's never like it's brought up a few times. Jack mentions how much it costs to make a film, but it's as much as it's boiling under the surface he doesn't draw too much attention to the fact that so much of what we're seeing throughout this movie is directly tied into economics. You know, it's, 
it is expensive to make a 70s porno film, but because it's being exhibited in a, you know, mass with other people, there is a uh, appeal to trying to give some art to it. Once it becomes this home video that you're just you just have in the privacy of your own house and there's not even any shame to because no one's going to be around. They just want the base core fetish that they're uh, the viewers looking for, essentially. You've also got and so and so that says like that's what the demand is. That's where the economy goes. Then you've got someone like Amber Waves who has. Uh, you know, she's, she's a woman who had a husband and a child and, uh, PTA and Julian Moore kind of get into this a bit in the commentary talking about like, you know, she probably started out as, you know, a housewife and then maybe her husband lost his job and then she started doing modeling to, to get some money. And, you know, she, she didn't want to be in this place, but financially she kind of had to. She, she found her way in it to make ends meet. And then only once she becomes successful there, her husband kind of pushes her away and decides, oh, it's, it's disgusting what you're doing. I don't want you around my child. And, and then Buck, you've got, you got Buck, who's this black man in this world where he's, he's working at the stereo store because that's sort of his passion. Um, even if he is slinging bullshit about the THX 1138, um, and then he's acting as a actor in adult content because that gives him a little extra money to chase his dream. Well, he's also acting as uh, a cowboy in his everyday life. And it's, he's not like, you know, for a, like they show you that's not really who he is. That's just, yeah, no, he's, he's putting on a performance in every yeah. aspect of his life. And I think what's really important is that we've kind of touched on it and little, you started touching on it is that economics are at play everywhere in this movie. PTA goes on with economics and there will be blood. And these two movies kind of tie each other in with that economics element where you do what you need to, to survive. You know, I think that's really important to there will be blood, but it's also really important here is that you're watching Dirk Diggler, the only way he knows how to make money or really make actual money, not car wash money, not dishwashing money, is porn. That's how he makes a good living for himself. He uses it in the wrong way. And, you know, he, for what he does, he's lauded as the best. He wins the awards. He wins the best actor. He shows some validation, even in this isolated, very hermetically sealed world. He has some kind of validation from the larger group that what he's doing matters to people. And for a kid like that, that has to mean everything to him is that what he's doing is making an impact on someone, maybe in New York, maybe in Toledo, wherever it may be. Well, and he is certainly an imperfect hero in that he, you know, he gets his inflated ego. He's become this huge porn star. And what does he do? He says, oh, well, now I'm going to go make music. And he takes a giant punch in the jaw as he slowly, very slowly realizes, oh, I, I'm not good at this. Did he realize that? I, I think, I think ultimately he does. He, we don't, we don't see that moment, but I think ultimately he, he stops pursuing it. 
Well, I think what's really important too is when you watch, especially in the early scenes, you watch the Eddie Adams scenes of the movie where he's with his girlfriend and she says, bounce me. And you're like, oh, he's about to, we're about to see some kind yeah. of sexual act. It's no, yeah. he gets up and he literally jumps on the bed and he jumps on the bed and she's basically bouncing around. He's this innocent little kid. He's not somebody who's basically known of the world. He doesn't know how to act in the real world. He's 17 when this movie begins and he's learning and adapting to the society and trying to figure out how to be an adult. And there's no way that that Eddie Adams character would have any kind of bearing outside of this world. He would be even more lost at sea probably. And I don't know what he would do. You know, it may be even a dishwasher. He'd be a dishwasher for the rest of his life. He'd wash dishes and he'd uh, wash cars for the rest of his life. And he may be able to put, you know, a little bit of food on his table, but he wouldn't actually have a lifestyle that, you know, when he turns 30, he'd be able to sustain. What about the violence in this movie? Like it's, we, we kind of have this ratcheting up effect of, I mean, I guess really the, the first moment that we experience violence is that I can think of at least is whenever, um, little Bill murders his wife, her companion, then kills himself and and then we just sort of have this crescendo come i remember watching it for the first time and not knowing quite where it was really gonna go yeah and he reached into his glove box and you think you know what he gets yeah and you're pretty sure that he gets a gun but you're not really sure and this is one of those moments where pta's ability behind the camera and his ability to look at what a scene's gonna feel like when it's drawn out into one shot is truly majestic. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is the shot of the movie to me where you follow Bill out, he gets the gun, you follow him back in and he shoots his wife and whoever she's with. And then he shoots himself and then it just hard cuts. Yeah. 1980. And the thing I love about the way it says 1980 is it says 1980 in really small print. Yeah. It is not a victorious 1980 big splashy thing. It is this very small, very tiny 1980. And it really like that moment to me is such a powerful moment where you realize where we're headed is not is not going to be easy subject material. Oh yeah, it, it announces that we are in the weird we are in the downward slope of this trajectory. In the in the decade or in the decade of decadence, essentially too. In in the commentary, PTA kind of discusses an early screening. He describes an early screening of the film where uh, people actually like when little Bill goes to get the gun, people start cheering and kind of catch on. They catch on to what's going to happen, and then he shoots his wife and the guy that she's with, and they they lost it. And he like he said he felt just terrible about it. He was like, Oh no, I've, I've really screwed this up. I've, Mm -hmm. I've gone wrong. And then he puts a gun in his mouth and kills himself. And they just break down to silence. And he kind of realized like, Oh, like, okay, I, that's on them. That's not on me. And I was able, you know, and he, and because that's a thing with, with the violence in, in this movie, like while it is sometimes 
gory. Like, I mean, when you see him shoot his brains out, that's gory. When you see the stuff all over. It's gory, but it's not. It's, it is not over the top. I think it's really realistic. With with Buck, it's also very like there's a lot of viscera and and stuff, but it's not it's not ever trying to be just basking in sort of the um the blood and gore. Well, no, violence. I think I think he coats Buck in essentially the blood and really the the probably brain, like all the matter of the person because yeah. it's not just blood uh yeah. and what i love about that moment is that it's coating buck in that so that when he makes that decision to pick up the clean cast that doesn't have any blood on it he now has stepped into a moral gray area that he was not before and pta loves the gray area he wasn't even trying to head that direction it just fell in his lap he was just trying to get some bear claws yeah yeah uh, th- this is this goes to like one of my complaints with P.T. Anderson in general, that scene in particular. The, the please, please scene. elaborate. Please elaborate. Yes. This is- so I, I, I find P.T. Anderson as a director uh, or a writer or however you want to put that as a a almost cruel or sadistic god to his characters. So whereas I, I, I feel like the Coen brothers are the gods don't care what what happens to the people in the Coen Brothers movie. It's just it's the things happen and and there's randomness and all this stuff where I feel like P.T. Anderson goes out of his way to torture his characters. In particular, he puts Buck in a pristine white suit on the day when he goes in to get donuts for his pregnant wife when a by chance, a guy comes in to rob the donut shop, and by chance, there's a, a concealed carry guy sitting in there, and they murder everyone, and he's covered in blood, and now he's tempted to take the money on the ground, and he's faced with that moral decision. It That, that in no way felt earned to me. I was just like, oh, yeah, okay, these things, okay, yeah. Uh-huh, he's tempted, got it. Well, yep. wait okay. for Magnolia. And, he has, and he's forced. <laughs> wait for Magnolia. Jake, I, like... I just got to say that uh, holding it up against the Coen brothers as a like they execute it correctly in this. And, no, and, I wasn't saying correctly. With, well, or they execute it in a way that like they justify the cruelty towards there or or like I, I think it's kind of bullshit in at least from the vantage point of like he is cruel to his character's period because if he was truly cruel to like if if buck was in a coen brothers film for taking that money so so much is going to come down on buck for picking that yes, up yes he would be punished. buck lives yes. a good life after that like that's yeah like he, it, he actually and that's you know that's what makes that moment really it makes it a hard moment and pta does not let you off the hook for saying you know what? You're kind of glad Buck gets the money, but also he just went through a really traumatic experience. Three to four people lose their lives because of it. I can't remember exactly how many it I is. But three. three. Is yeah. it three? three? And it's 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 a hard moment because people lose their lives and they shouldn't. But also at the same time, Buck has been trying to get this leg up. He has that moment in the the bank where they say you're a pornographer. He's like, not a pornographer. Don't tell yeah. me that. I'm not a pornographer. And he really he's pleading with him like I'm, I'm I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to get out of this lifestyle. I'm trying to do something for myself, and my wife, and my kids. 
he wants to do better. And that's the thing that Yeah, that scene frustrated me too. And it's but it's a great moment. Like how how does the bank know he's a pornographer? Why do you not even tell the banker? Because when you when you apply for a loan, you've got to put your places of employment. When he puts so did they when he puts horny Horner Productions, they're gonna say I guess yeah. Like and it's you know he's got to put some kind of employment. He's gonna put the place where he earns money, which is the record shop or sorry the uh, sound equipment shop, but also he's gonna have to put Jack Horner Productions. Yeah, but I think Buck is such a well realized character, um, and I think too. I think we're gonna, you know, there's a couple side characters that we're gonna over overlook if we don't kind of go to them. I think kind of like the Colonel. Uh, I think the mm-hmm. Colonel's one of those characters that you never like when you see him initially. You're like, this guy's trouble. Yeah, and yeah. you don't quite understand why Jack is kind of spending time with him. And then there's that great moment where the Colonel basically gets arrested and he's like, well, you know, it's, I didn't touch the kids. I didn't do this. And I think it, you had to mention it at some point. And Jack is just, he's, he's disgusted. Yeah. He just hangs up the phone. He walks away. And I don't, PTA doesn't let you off the hook for existing in this world, which I think it, it'd be really easy to make a version of Boogie Nights where all the sex all the excitement of that is fun. And he doesn't let you linger in that. He shoots all the sex scenes in this movie like he's shooting a procedural. He shoots them all very monochromatically. He doesn't have any flashy camera movement. And you know, they you know, when they talk about position changes, you know, for the sex scenes and they're blocking the sex scenes, he doesn't show you any of that. He shows you the business of it, and this is just a business for these people. Yeah, the the only thing that is titillating really is the actual watching the behind the scenes filmmaking aspects of it. Um, the The act of the pornography is not is not presented in a particular. Yeah, way. and I want I wonder how much of that was a choice, and how much of that was to avoid like a triple X or NC seventeen rating. I don't know what it well, was. At the time. I, I think easily he could have fallen into an NC seventeen rating, but. PTA is he doesn't want you to enjoy it. That's the thing. He doesn't want you to enjoy it. You know, he this is the only movie of his where I can remember any kind of nudity really. I mean, maybe Inherent Vice. Yeah, Inherent, Inherent Vice, Vice definitely does. Yeah. Yep. And he and it's that's a very, you know, you've not seen a Jake, but it gets it, it's a very tough scene of nudity. Uh and what I love about the way PTA yields something like, you know, Human flesh is that it's it's a transactional thing for these people, and yes, they may be beautiful people, but they're kind of in a lot of ways empty at the core. And I think really that moment where Dirk is about to shoot his first sex scene, William H Macy walks him, and he's in that basically essentially holding closet before he calls in, and he is about to shoot the scene with Amber Waves. It is this tiny closet with essentially license plates on the wall and he is he's lost he's lost at sea in this tiny closet he's about to walk in and it's all it's all magic that you see on the screen but what is it it's nothing glamorous in the slightest in no way was I trying to say the Coen brothers do something right and, and P.T. Anderson does it wrong. The, the thing, this goes back to the complaint I've always 
had about P.T. Anderson, which is when I watch these movies, it feels so incompatible with my worldview and my beliefs. I know that like enjoying a movie is a meeting between the director and what's on screen and you and the time you watch it and all of those things. And it just never clicks for me. I'm not even saying it's a bad movie. I'm not saying he did something wrong here. He's clearly proficient. He nails many, many scenes in this movie. And it's just something that that I I don't feel like this movie is speaking a kind of truth to me. And I know it's a me problem and not a movie problem, but that is his worldview, the the things he puts on screen, the things he chooses to talk about, to architect his stories, those are the things I struggle with in in and stop me from being able to connect with this in the way I do some other films. Can I ask what do you like what is his worldview in your framing? I I just think it's the way that I feel like uh, the the world is, it's not even ambivalent. The world is cruel to people. People are bad. The, the world's cruel. Bad things are going to happen. It's about downfall. It's about these like bitter, rough characters by the end. And I know that's going to some other films and other things that I've always kind of like held uh, about P.T. Anderson. That's that's the view I'm, I'm hoping to change by seeing the movies that I haven't seen from him yet. Yeah, yeah but enough about the Coen brothers. What about P.T. Anderson? <laughs> the, it, it's different. It's different for me because I feel like it is less of a cruelty towards the characters and more of a, 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 a just or maybe even like a Joker God kind of situation than, than a, a the world is a cruel and cold place. See, I don't think... I don't think PTA is cruel to his characters in the slightest. I really don't. No, I not think, at all. I think PTA loves all his characters. I think when he gets to the point where he's shooting somebody like a Dirk Diggler or mm-hmm. a even the Colonel, I think he does. He shows empathy to everyone. Like he really, I think he's such an empathetic, very soft, very sweet director. I think this movie has a genuine sweetness and a genuine heart to it. And I think he is interested in exploring the broken bits of people. And that's what I think he's so good at understanding is how even the most broken of people has these redemptive qualities and maybe they're not completely lost. And I think he understands that better than any working director. I agree. He has love and care for all of these characters. He he deeply understands these characters as he puts them on screen. And and he does a good job of bringing all of that out. It's the world that they live in is 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 it breaks them. And that's what he likes. And how do you explain the how do you explain the ending of this movie then? Well, the, and and I don't feel the ending. And this again, a me problem. It just feels kind of tacked on at the end. Like, it's like they do get a little bit of redemption at the end or a little bit of happy thing. Buck gets his 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 uh, his uh, record store. But it's like two minutes at the end of the movie. And it's like, OK, cool. Reed but gets it's, his it's magic a, show. Reed, well, Reed but no, but Buck, yeah, so I think Buck is the one unequivocal. Yes, he's going to live a good life. I think Buck is the character that essentially PTA is saying, like, he's making the right choices. I th- mm-hmm. and I think I think Roller Girl might get out as well. Roller, what was yeah. her epilogue? I was trying to remember. She gets her GD. Oh yeah, that's right. Baby steps, but it's no. And the that's direction. the thing is, you know, that's why I find it. It's tough for me to see criticisms of kind of his worldview because I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's the world we live in currently. Like it, it, 
it sucks, right? I mean, you know, put on put on the news for five minutes, and it's absolutely horrific what you watch. And I think putting characters like a Dirk Diggler in a worldview in a world setting that is essentially pretty, I think, pretty realistic. I don't think anything we're shown in this movie is outside of the realm of reality. No, and I and I and I'm not saying that it is. Well, with, with the exception of uh, of uh, what happens to Buck. Outside of that, I, I like it's possible it could happen in reality, but that feels particularly outside. And and the thing is, the other scene with with Buck and uh, Reed in the like botched robbery uh, at least feels more earned than than just like the random chance. Uh, you mean, you mean Buck? Scene. You mean Dirk, Dirk, and, Dirk and Reed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Dirk and Reed. Sorry, sorry. Guys, what do you say we lighten things up a little bit and uh, get to Jake's favorite part of the show? Let's talk about our f- the funniest moment, the part that gave us the chuckles. And uh, Jake, I, I think you're going to leave us in suspense a little bit. Peterson, let's have you go first. <laughs> yeah, so the moment I can't ever stop laughing at is when Reed and Dirk, it's before he's named Dirk, so Reed and Eddie are talking about how much they can squat, how much they can bench. You go first. Yeah, you go first. And then they don't do it. And then they go try to do cannonball or sorry, gainers. They try to do flips. And then you've got that great moment where John C. Riley tries to do a flip. And yeah. He can't quite get there. And those shot underwater of him, mouth agape. <laughs> and then when he resurfaces, Eddie just goes, you got to bring your legs all the way around. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's great. I mean, it's this moment where these two guys, and it shows Reed's this innocent little kid too. He's just this innocent little kid tossed in this crazy world. Uh, so I love that moment. I think it's hilarious. I can't stop laughing at it. Also, John C. Riley or Reed makes a frozen margarita with no ice. Welcome to the 1970s, guys. Chick, what about you? So, uh, my my favorite moment comes from Reed as well. Reed is, Reed is is so good. John C. Riley's so good. But when when <laughs> when Dirk Diggler thinks he can record an album and he's in the studio and he's just singing his sad little heart out, and it does the reverse shot, and John C. Riley is just just boogieing. He is just <laughs> he is just cutting a rug you at how great touch. Dirk is singing. That get that that I <laughs> I, I laughed well through the, the the that scene. Like it's just he is so he has no doubt that Dirk is just laying down solid gold. That's that is actually my favorite moment as well. But it's Dirk singing the touch uh, because <laughs> like. He's just so unaware. Maybe he's just so coked up that he doesn't realize. But, like, he thinks he's making solid gold. I I, I don't know if his drug was ego or cocaine there, but full confidence. And kudos to Mark Wahlberg for having a terrible singing voice. Well, in 1980s, and I think it's like 82, 83 at that point, that could be a hit. Like that could be a hit. It's a cover. <laughs> it's a cover of a like Transformers song, right? I don't know. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty like, sure it's a cover. Transformers but, the the robots? Yeah, the robots, the movie, the one with Horson Wells in it. Um 
That's too early for that. Then they're like 86, 85, something like that. We'll, we'll uh, look into it, and there will be links or corrections in the show notes. You got the touch! Uh, but also, there is a full... If you on go and listen to the uh, Boogie Night soundtrack, Mark Wahlberg recorded the entire... It's five minutes long. <laughs> so if you want five whole minutes of that, you can also listen to it. With my oh, luck, my daughter will ask for that on repeat on the way to daycare. <laughs> the the instead thing of that scar blows song. my mind... There's only a couple things that could have happened. Either Mark Wahlberg has the talent to sing terribly or the confidence to sing in his only terrible form of singing and just like give it his absolute all. And both of those are are, are impressive and admirable. I think own. it's a little bit of both. I think he's not the most gift, gifted singer, but I think he knows how to wield his voice a little bit. So I think it's a little bit of both. The Touch is a Rock song by American singer and guitarist Stan Bush. The song featured prominently in the 1986 animated film, The Transformers, the movie. What? But this was in 1982 or 83, so when was... That's that's as much as I know, man. I, I like the idea that Dirk and Reed wrote this song, and when they the tapes didn't get paid for, that song got passed along, and then it became a hit. That's what I like to... That's what I like to believe. And then they maybe they made some money on as songwriters, because that's where the, the money really comes in. Director Paul Thomas yeah, yeah, Anderson had also used the song in his 1988 short film, the Dirt Diggler story on which Boogie Nights is based. After all is said and done, you never walk, you never run, you're a winner. You got to move, you know the streets, break the rules, take the heat, you're nobody's fool. You're at your best. All right, guys, I think it's uh, probably time for the Anderson Anthology. Uh, Jake, once again, let's leave us in suspense. Peterson, where are you going with this? Is this an Anderson A-list? Cream of the crop, top of the... Pops. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a deep dive? It's uh, not among his best, but you should check it out if you're, you're a fan. Or is it purely for Paul's Papa? This has got a lot of mileage. This has got a lot of, lot of muscle. Uh, this is definitely an interesting list for me. I love this movie. Uh, I think this is a must-see for cinema fans. Um, I think there's no way you can say you are a cinema fan and haven't seen it, even if you don't like it. Even if you come out on the Jake side where you say this isn't that good of a movie, I think you had to have seen it. I think it's pretty close to Masterpiece, if not a Masterpiece, so... This is definitely an Anderson A-list for me. There's a lot of inches on this thing. Uh, you've got to see it. <laughs> Jake, what about you? So so this movie is 93% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got, an, it's got a 7.9 out of 10 on IMDb. It's an 85 on Metacritic and is undoubtedly the best movie that I will ever rate a deep dive. I just... When it doesn't connect to me, I have trouble telling other people it's a must watch. And and I would I would say like if you are are really in the in the cinema, if you're in the film, you should watch this movie. You should, but I just can't give it the full endorsement that I I know I'm going to give to other movies. And you can hate me, you can at me. I I, I gotta I gotta be an honest reviewer. I gotta I gotta put it as a deep dive for me. I'm I'm excited to see a deep dive. If Peterson was in your position, he would have definitely given this. Purely for Paul's Papa. Uh, I don't know about that. No, I, I, 
can't I can't give it that low. Like it does it does some things right. It 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 does it does things right. It's not a bad movie. Okay. I'm not saying it's bad. It doesn't connect for me. Okay. It's it's hmm. deep dive. For me, I I actually so I guess I didn't really get into this. We talked about it up at the top. Um I would say this movie actually bumped down a little bit for me in my like overall PTA ranking. If I was to lay that out, I think this viewing, um, I saw a few more of the flaws. I like, I like this movie. I like this movie a lot. I don't think I like it now as much as I did at a, at a, at a younger age. Um, that said, it's still gotta be Anderson a list. It's just, lower on the Anderson a list. It's, it's still that, it's still that cream of the crop. Um, I mean, I think purely for the fact that it is the, like the zeitgeist movie that it was at the time Mm -hmm. and the, um, the way it kind of exploded on the scene, which we didn't really get into much in our review, but it's to define PT Anderson. I think you have to, you have to experience this movie well, or you're going to miss a piece to say this thing exploded on the scene. It's not like it made any money. Like this thing didn't make any money. Right. But, but it, it was, became it this like culture milestone. Yeah. Though, really? Right. Yeah. Like it was, it, it was like fight club. It was the fight club also yeah. didn't make any money, but everyone was talking about it. And it was, it was in the, it was, or it was like the first eight seasons of mad men. You know, it was, it was one of those things where people were talking about it, even if it wasn't, uh, making the big, and you know, they're probably, it's a movie about pornography. It's this, like, I can also see why that's a hard sell at the box office. Can I ask you a question about the flaws and one that you may have spotted that, that I, I just need confirmation if I'm wrong or not. You're sure. probably wrong. So when Eddie goes to talk to his mom, he comes home late. His mom's sitting in the dark. She's drinking. They go in his room. They rip posters off the wall. The dad's in like his bed clothes, sitting up in bed. And then he gets mad and he runs out of the house and it's daytime. Was it daytime the whole time? Yeah, it was. It was that like, very, very early, like five thirty, five o'clock, where it's very lightly daytime and it's starting to turn, but it's still that kind of gray haze. Yeah. Okay. He'd been out all night. Yeah. yeah, I I thought I thought he had been out all night, but I thought it was like still dark when he when he showed up. It's supposed to be the first two times at the club. They are there to the very end. It's probably I don't know two three o'clock in the morning. So let's say he goes back. He yeah, sex yeah. roller girl a couple times, and now it's five thirty six o'clock. More importantly, okay. the touch didn't come out until nineteen eighty six. Well, Chris, we're down to that moment where we're talking about the tallest, widest pound we have. So what do we have on tap today? Uh, I knew I had to come up with something special for Boogie Nights. Just, I mean, because we're talking about, and I would like to congratulate you guys on not getting uh, into too many euphemisms or uh, gimmicky jokes. We're bigger than that. I am pairing Boogie Nights with the 25th anniversary Big Yeti from Great Divide Brewing Company in Denver, Colorado. If you are familiar with Great Divide, you've probably had their Yeti, which is an imperial stout that they make. The Big Yeti is that kicked up a notch. So this is coming in at a whopping 13.5% ABV. And 
a massive 75 IBU, which uh, that bitterness, it's the same as, as the original Yeti, but I find that actually adding the little bit of extra alcohol on top um, kind of helps balance it out a bit. Um, the other thing you should know about this beer is it comes in a massive stovepipe can that uh, it's coming in at nearly 20 ounces and so that's the perfect vessel, the perfect Diggler size vessel for this thick, rich, aggressive Imperial Stout Yeti goodness. The Yeti is known for being sort of aggressive on all fronts. It's very dark. It's very rich. It's very bitter. Um, but those things all kind of hit you at once. I feel like with adding a little bit of that booze, a little booze bite to it. Um, it balances out in a, in a weird way, maybe because it slows you down a little bit, um, but makes it a much more uh, sippable beer and makes it as it warms up as, you know, a stout is want to do um, continues to evolve into something nice and rich and, and sweet that uh, I find kind of wanting in the, the original Yeti. So and, you know, also with this thing being about 20 ounces and very high ABV, I figure if you can pace it just right, you're probably going to be feeling about like Dirk and Rec or and Reed uh, if, if you hit it just right in the uh, Alfred, Alfred Molina's house, um, because this could do some damage to you. So pace it out, pick up, uh, pick up one of these big old cans. And enjoy yourself a 25th anniversary Big Yeti from Great Divide Brewing Company when you check out Boogie Nights. So if you were to pop one of these, where are you going to watch it? Boogie Nights is currently streaming on Showtime and available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red telephone and leave us a voicemail at 484 484- Four two four six three six two. That's four eight four four cinema. Stick around, folks. We'll be right back with really rad recommendations coming up next. Yeah. I saw a photograph from ten years back. It's you and I were standing in the rain. Somewhere outside Atlanta And I think my 12-seat band Is right there out of frame So as before I knew my way around Los Angeles And before I ever cared about nice neighborhoods We were driving through the night Sleeping on hotel floors Thinking that we had it good We were kids back Always gonna be yeah. I see no friend on my timeline who 
All right, guys, it is time for Really Red Recommendation once again. Jake, you have been so kind to everything this episode. Why don't you go first? No, nah, I don't like I don't like Really Red Recommendations. I think they're cruel. Yeah. <laughs> you don't agree <laughs> with the worldview of having them? I, I don't agree. You just like what you like. Don't listen to me. But if, if, you, if you have to, if you have to listen to me, go watch a better movie from 1997, one that I finally got around to watching this past week which is jackie brown streaming on netflix a movie that i bought you for christmas what two three years ago it's fine chris forget about that yeah i know i i look as soon as i watched i was like i am so stupid for not having popped that in the day it came in the mail this this, it like it 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 really worked for me like it was great i i i I was really invested it was fantastic it's got pam greer she's amazing Samuel Jackson's great. Michael Keaton's great. Robert De Niro is is Robert De Niro. <laughs> he, he's but he's like he's pretty muted though. He's low key. Yeah, yeah. I, I I like his role in it because he's kind of like a loser in a way. Oh, he's it's definitely a loser. Like, yeah, it's it's a uh, he he's interesting in this one. It, I would slate it in the Robert De Niro canon by his his weird role in Brazil, another movie where I'm like Robert De Niro. In that one, but the thing is, I feel like that's probably closer to real life Robert De Niro than not in him being a loser, but just in his demeanor I mean, than mm-hmm. most of the characters he plays. Yeah, Spoiler, yeah. spoiler alert: I've met De Niro in person, so if you really want to know, I'll tell you one day. One day, but not today. Yeah, <laughs> keep keep that one in your back pocket. But <laughs> but uh, based on Chris's recommendation to me, and the four years later when I decided to actually watch this movie, I'm going to recommend it forward as well. You should watch Jackie Brown, especially if for some reason it's lingering out there as the last Quentin Tarantino that you have not seen like it was for me. So now I'm a, I'm a Tarantino completionist. I'm, 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 I'm much happier. Uh, Where would you rank it in his filmography? In, in the, in the upper half, but not in the top three. Number one, baby. Really? Yeah, it's uh-huh. it's been my favorite for probably since I saw it. Really, and it just grows every time I I watch it. I it's we. I mean, I've got it number four, but then I look at it and I'm like, how how is that number four? Like I, I literally I look at Tarantino movies and I'm like, wait, that's that deep in the list? Like it's crazy. Every yeah. time I look at a list, I'm like, wait. Pulp Fiction is not number two, number one. Like it, yeah. it really, you know, like every yeah. time I think yeah. about Tarantino, it boggles my mind that every single movie on his filmography, I genuinely pretty much love. Yeah. I, I rewatched Inglorious Bastards this week too, as well. Yeah, and it just made me want to go out and rewatch once upon a time in Hollywood again. Inglorious Bastards. So number one. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I don't know that it's number one. I got to sit down and think about them all again with this, uh, with these recent, new movies and rewatches but but that that's my recommendation go watch jackie brown peterson do you have a recommendation for us yeah so over the past couple days i watched uh arctic which is a movie from this year a very small movie uh with mads mickelson uh if you're not familiar mads mickelson is casino royale he's the villain in that he's in uh hannibal Amongst other things, he's one of those great uh, kind of character actors that is starting to maybe be a little bit more of an American presence, which is exciting to me because I think he's unbelievable. So he is in this little movie called Arctic where he is essentially stranded in the middle of the Arctic terrain 
and he has to try to make it to some kind of safety. And he essentially like Robert Redford and all is lost, but you haven't seen that movie uh, from probably 2014. Uh, go see that as well. Almost a silent performance. And Mads Mikkelsen is so good. He just conveys so much through body language, through non-expressive uh, action. And it is a really tension-driven movie where you're not sure exactly where the movie is going. Really? I mean, you know kind of where it's going to end up, but you don't know how it's going to get there. And Mads Mikkelsen is just doing unbelievable work. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, it is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, which is where I saw it. So I'd, I'd, I'd certainly check it out. It's about an hour and a half long, maybe a little bit longer. Nice, easy set. Uh, and it is about as tension as tension dri- <clears throat> it's about as tension driven as the movies get gets. So highly recommend that. That is Arctic uh, with Matt Mickelson. Excellent. I am a sucker for Maz. Mad about Maz, baby. Uh, I am going to recommend a movie that, so I, there's something that I'd like to try to do with my recommendations throughout the series. We'll see if I can keep it up, but I know at least for the next couple, I will be able to, um, I'm going to recommend day for night by Francois Truffaut, uh, because for, for a few reasons, one, I mean, the obvious one being that it's this meta cinematic movie about, uh, trying to basically the intricacies of trying to get a film made in the case of this movie. Um, Truffaut actually plays a director trying to make this film called meet Pamela and uh, introduces us to the sprawling ensemble cast of, of characters between cast and crew and uh, wives and everyone in between. And it's fun. It's delightful. But the other reason I want to recommend it other than some of the connections, loose connections to Boogie Nights, you know, being about making porn and whatnot, is uh, looking for those, like, generally Francois Truffaut would be a director that I would recommend for Wes. And so uh, I decided, okay, well, let's try to pair him with, with PTA. And I do think a double feature of Boogie Nights and Day for Night would actually be a pretty good one. You probably start with Day for Night, and then go Boogie Nights. Uh, I prefer that you start it with Day for Night. Okay. You you probably just prefer that you start with Day for Night and then end with Day uh, for Night as well. Yeah, I'm sorry. I got something I got I to gotta get out of here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I think that'd be a pretty fun double feature. I just, I don't know. I'm a sucker for Truffaut. Um, and seeing Truffaut on screen makes it even, even that much better. Uh, this movie's a little difficult to find streaming right now, but there is a really beautiful Criterion Collection Blu-ray. So if you can get your hands on that, either, you know, Barnes Noble, local library, whatever, uh, I'd say check it out that way. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And I, if you're watching it for the first time, I envy you. I I love this one. Truly great film. I own it on Criterion. Triple feature this with (laughs) Bowfinger. Why is that funny? And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Join us next time for a brand new episode of The Magnificent Andersons, our ongoing exploration of the works of two American auteurs, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Next time, we're discussing Wes's sophomore feature, Rushmore. You can find us online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes and more. 
And if you've got something to say, you can always email us at hello at warstartsmidnight.com or better yet, give us a call and leave a voicemail at 484-424-6362. Or just say hello on Twitter. You can find me at WSAMPod. I'm at JakeRG23 or AOL keyword Jake. And I'm Peterson W. Hill. If you enjoy War Starts at Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan and it'll make you feel awesome. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Ben Rector for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at benrectormusic.com. Thanks for listening, folks. You know, people tell me I kind of look like Han Solo. You're not the boss of me, Jack. You're not the king of Dirk. I'm the boss of me. I'm the king of me. I'm Dirk Diggler. I'm the star. It's my big dick, and I say when we roll.